Hello and welcome to another edition of Intelligence for Your Life, the podcast. I'm Gib Gerard here with John Tesh. And in a minute, we're going to be joined by none other than Eric Barker. Now, we've had him on the show before, and you may know him if you know the book Barking Up the Wrong Tree, the surprising science behind why everything you know about success is mostly wrong. And uh, I think I, I've, I've read his book twice. I know John has read his book a time and a half or maybe twice. And basically, this book is all about how to be better at everything, how to succeed, at the, how to find that path to success, that, that meandering path that we're all looking for. It is a phenomenal book, and Eric is a, is a brilliant, brilliant guy. Uh, and he, he basically finds the alternative point of view in how to find, how to find that meandering path to success. And, I, and, and we are really, really excited to have him back. Before we get to him, though, uh, if you want to follow up with us at all, you can find us on Facebook.com slash John Tesh. We're there all the time. We do Facebook Lives. We're also at John Tesh uh, on Twitter. And then I'm Facebook.com slash Gib Gerard at Gib Gerard on all of the other media platforms. So uh, without further ado, here is our interview with author of Barking Up the Wrong Tree, Eric Barker. So Eric, uh, you know I love, your, uh, I love your blog posts. And if you haven't signed up, how many people you got on your blog now? About 325,000. That's amazing. That's amazing. And I, I, I bet you every one of them has better lighting in their studio than you do. I'm just kidding. It's a joke. It's a small joke. <laughs> do you want me to get the lights? No, no, I won't get the lighting. No, no. I'm just, just kidding. <laughs> when you get to, you know, when you get to a certain age, you have to have, uh, if, you saw, if you saw all the lights in here, you'd be like, what the hell's wrong with him? He thinks he's on entertainment tonight. So John, this John was, would also like to remind everybody that he's got some Emmys. <laughs> you know what this? Oh, never mind. Get this out of here. This no, 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 no. Have I just won? <laughs> it's terrible. It's it's actually Eric. Maybe you've got a blog for this. Uh, it's it's to remind me that I haven't done anything in the last twenty years. <laughs> like, you know, it's that it's that thing of uh, what, what is this from? This is from nineteen. 19- uh, 87. Were you even born then? You weren't even born. Gib wasn't born. No, you were I born. was born in 87. Five, five. Yeah. Yeah, this is like, what have you done now? What's going on? What's happening? You know, what's <laughs> going? What's, I, I don't see anything. This is like, just masochism yeah. reminders. There you go. Uh, and then I invited Gib to be a part of the interview. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> I, if we were going to make fun of his lighting, I had to. I had to jump in with something. That's true. It was my fault. I brought it on myself. Uh, so yeah, this this blog and the best way to find your blog. Let's 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 do that before I forget. Is how if people just want to Google my name, Eric Barker, or if they Google "barking up the wrong tree" blog. Right. Um, right. Right. You know, up. And the book is barking up the wrong tree as well. And, and we've re-read, we've read and reread the book, the two of us, a couple of times now, Eric. You should know that. Like we, we we read through it the first time we ever talked to you. We had read through it, and there are there are still a lot of gems that we go back and we'll because we read a lot of the same books. We will go back and and beat each other with them every once in a while. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, hey, Eric, just just to get started with this this conversation about habits, and I, I have a feeling this is going to be a you know a two parter for us. Um, how important are our habits to success in everything in, in, in business and in entrepreneurship in, uh, in, in relationships? Let's start I, there. I mean, I, I'd say, I'd say past your beyond your genetics, uh, you know, which you don't have control over, uh, you know, habits are enormous. One study, uh, that, uh, Charles Duhigg cites in his book is that a full 40% of what you do every day, aren't decisions. They're just you executing habits. So you're basically on autopilot nearly half the day. So if those habits are good, great. If those habits are bad, 
you're running around like a robot executing mm -hmm. a program that's that's making life worse. So like half the day, nearly, it's about your habits. That's insane. That's an insane amount of of your of your behavior that is that is determined just by what you've done the previous twenty one days. <laughs> Yeah, and so what is let's go. Let's start with your book, Barking Up the Wrong Tree. Are are there some examples in there? I mean, you have the, the best examples, and, and I love the fact that this is this is obviously a book that that um, was born out of a lot of research, and uh, and so the it's it's not like hey, Houdini did this, you know, uh, Ted Williams did that, you know, it's 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 uh, it's real background on these people, so it's it's actually a history lesson as, as well. Who who the, of the characters you study? Who do you think worked the habit process and what did they do? It worked it, worked it, uh, worked it well, let's say. I mean, T Ted Williams, you know, as a baseball player was just relentless. I mean, his life was revolved around baseball, you know, pr probably to an unhealthy degree, but, you know, it was very successful. That's where the issue of balance comes in. But one of the people I point to uh, is uh, my friend Cal Newport, who is a professor at Georgetown University. His, his PhD thesis at MIT and his first book were both due in the same week, but he is so just on, on task with his, with all the, he has wife and two kids, marriage, tenured professor, helping students, uh, writes a book every two or three years. Um, he is a machine and a lot of it is him just saying, here's how I do it. It's very consistent about, you know, building those good habits and eradicating bad habits. And I think we're all amazed when we have those days when we're on point, mm -hmm. where we see just how much we can do. And more days can be like that if we, if we just put a little effort in. That's, the, that's, that's an old saying, we all have as many days, of the, in, um, as many hours in the day as Beyonce does. <laughs> in, in your case, Cal Newport is your Beyonce, is my point. That, I think Cal would appreciate that. <laughs> I, I definitely, no, it's, it, it's that kind of thing that, you know, it's not about, like, how much time do you have? We all have the same amount of time. Right. It's an issue of priorities. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's where it's really critical. Efficiency plays, too, if you can do things faster. But, you know, that issue of prioritizing and knowing just becomes phenomenal. And once, once people, once you start getting rid of the bad habits, it's amazing how much time you free up. Yeah. Well, and, uh, and, and am, I, uh, am I correct in saying that uh, I think Gib and I both have read his book, War of Arts and Do the Work? Is that, well, that's Pressfield. That's Pressfield. That's Pressfield. Cal Newport's Deep Work, right? Deep Work, that's right. Cal, yeah. And just really fantastic stuff. But I mean, you know, what we've seen so much with, uh, with you know, all the social science literature, you know, over the past few decades you know, comes down to a big part of it. We always blame ourselves and we don't have to because one of the most critical things in terms of changing habits isn't so much changing yourself as changing your environment. We forget how influenced we are by our, our environment. And if I had to give people one tip on breaking bad habits, it would simply be, uh, Sean Aker mentioned this, who was a researcher at Harvard, said if you just make the, the, the bad habits 30 seconds tougher to do, and the good habits, 30 seconds easier to do, you will see massive changes in your life. Yeah, that's good. But that's good. Can we, like, can we talk about Ted Williams just for a second? Talk, talk more about, about his habits? Yeah. I mean, with, with Ted Williams, it was kind of relentless focus to the, to, the, to the degree where even we can talk about how much of his life was he focused on baseball, but he even took it beyond that. 
where he was focused not only on being a great baseball player, he wanted to be the greatest hitter. So Ted Williams would not even practice, when he would be fielding during practice, he would be practicing his swing. He would be ignoring fielding, you know, a big part of the game of baseball to get better and better at batting. It was always at the forefront. He would literally, you know, go home from school when he was a kid and practice swinging until he turned the lights out at the field. And then he'd go home at night and he'd practice more before he went to bed and he'd wake up early to practice more again. Well, you're talking about a big baseball baseball aficionado and Gib Girard. He could easily be a baseball uh, announcer, a huge Dodgers fan. And, um, and, and Gib, I'm sure you have witnessed when you go to bat, batting practice, for example, the different rituals and the habits that all the top players have. Well, to your point, I mean, one of the things I love so much about baseball is that it is a, a game of habits, a game of ritual, a game of repetitive behavior done over and over and over again with only a slight statistical advantage getting dropped out by the end of it and what's a, by the end of a long season. And what's so amazing about what you're saying about Ted Williams is that that repetition um, is what gave him that he is still the last 400 hitter of all time. It gave him that um, – it gave him that edge that gave him that. And then, by the way, a 400 hitter, which is unheard of nowadays at the, uh, for, for a season, means that you're still getting, you're not getting on base 60% of the time. That's how crazy the, the game of baseball is in that, in that sense. You're still the majority of the time, you're, you're not making it to the first base. But um, as what I, again, what I love about baseball so much is the ritualistic nature of it. It's, it's how many times can you make your body throw a ball over 88 miles an hour without tearing all of the ligaments out of your, uh, out of your arm. And, and in order to do that, you have to practice. And I watch these guys, they do the longest yoga warmups you've ever seen in your life in order to make sure that their bodies move in the way that they have repeatedly trained themselves to do. And then they won't deviate from those. If it works, they won't deviate it one, from it one iota. I, I, I want to touch on, uh, you raised a really interesting point there, the issue of rituals, which there's actually plenty of research on in terms of, Having a ritual, like we, we could do something habitually over and over again, but having a ritual around it actually changes the experience. Mm. You know, when people toast uh, before having a meal, they actually, research shows, they actually enjoy the meal more. You know, there's a lot of rituals when we make it kind of like a, a mini ceremony. Uh, when people have a little ritual bef before they begin a meal, if, it's, if they're on a diet, they tend to comply better with the diet. You know, there's a whole... There was a whole body of research, some of this done by Francesca Gino at, at Harvard Business School, that shows ritualizing it, making a little kind of system out of it, something that is our own, actually has, increases the positive effects of habits from being more compliant to also, you know, enjoying it more. And how have you used um, what you, the research that you, that you um, came up with and the scenarios you came up with in Barking Up the Wrong Tree have you applied any of those or tweaked your, your life in the, in the habit world at all? Oh, definitely. One of the things, uh, again, going back to Cal Newport that I use, is Cal, uh, Cal does not like to-do lists. He, he says that basically to-do to -do lists are evil. He's like, focus on your calendar. And he makes a really great point. And that is the reason so many of us struggle with trying to reach the bottom of our to-do lists is because we're not thinking about time. You can, you can schedule... You can have a, a 27 hours of to-dos uh, for a 24-hour day. That's impossible. Versus when you look at your calendar, you can be a lot more realistic and say, 
I am not going to get all these things done. It forces you to prioritize what's important. I can do that today. And then you're able to give other people more realistic timelines and say, there's no way I'm going to get to this today. I can have it for you tomorrow. And he ties this all up into something he calls fixed schedule productivity, which actually helps you with work-life balance. Because if you say, hey, I want to finish at six, I know I got this many hours, I know I got this many to-dos, I can slot them into these hours, then all of a sudden you can start to maximize your time, get things done, be realistic, and have some work-life balance where you're getting things done. Do you think it's also helpful to know some of the science behind why we create good and bad habits? Yeah, I think it's really important because when we have this understanding of it, it allows us to deal with seeming exceptions. Because if you just have a hard and fast rule, you're just going to be, if something seems like, oh, am I, can I deviate? Can I not? When you understand the whys, that allows you to say, hey, this exception, it's going to be all right. It's not a problem. I can cope with it. Versus you doing something that might mess up the habit, that might get you, get you to kind of like, you know, really stop doing it, stop engaging in it. So I think a deep understanding, once we have the why, it allows us to tell ourselves a better story about why we're doing it and how the best way to do it. And that in turn allows us to be more compliant. Yeah, and so let's look, let's talk about a book that, uh, Gib, I'm not sure if you've read, read the whole book, but I know that you've dug into it. Um, Charles Duhigg's uh, Power of Habit. Mm -hmm. um, and and that's, a, that's actually uh, a book that you recommend in this, in this blog that we like so much. And, and he's a, a Pulitzer Prize winning New York Times reporter. And he says that the primary secret to focus on is replacement. And, and this, is, this is you writing here, Eric. As you well know, habits are really hard to break. So don't keep the habit, Duhigg says, but replace the troublesome part at the end where you do something not so good. Uh, Duhigg clearly and enjoyably walks you through how to do that. Can you explain that? Yeah, what's really interesting is that basically with habits, we usually have a, a trigger and that gets our brain going and that causes, it's almost like, like, a, a, like a self contained computer program where something sets it off and then we're in autopilot until we finish. So that critical thing is, can we, if, if we can't, changing the trigger is often very difficult because we have a, a immediate response. But what we can do is say, hey, I'm feeling hungry. And if the habit is, I reach for cookies, you can say, hey, I'm feeling hungry. If we talk, I talked earlier about the issue of context, environment, if we hide the cookies, make the cookies harder to get to and tell ourselves, I feel hungry, I'm going to reach for something healthy. I'm going to reach for an apple. And you make the apples proximate, close, visible, right where you can see them. Now, I'm getting hungry, I'll have an apple. You can keep that kind of habitual response, but you can change the thing you do at the end. You know, I'm, I want to take a break. You know, I'm, I'm a little tired. Maybe that means opening Facebook, checking email, and then you go down the internet rabbit hole and you're not accomplishing anything. I need a break. Okay, well, I'm going to read a book. I'm going to, you can keep the trigger and change the habitual response at the end. And so back, good. back to that balance of, of, like you were talking about before, where you want to make those, the good habits 30 seconds easier and the hard habits 30 seconds harder. The bad habits 30 seconds harder. Yeah, there's so much research that shows, uh, Brian Wansink at Cornell has done so much, uh, he has this great book uh, uh, called Mindless Eating. Where he we, talks quote, we quote, listen, Gib and I quote him at least once a week. Go ahead. All the time. 
I mean, you make certain foods more visible, you're more likely to eat them. You know, you make foods less visible, you're less likely to eat them. You serve food on bigger plates, you eat more. Smaller plates, you eat less. You know, so having that issue where we have triggers, you know, I'm tired, I'm hungry, I'm this, you want to make those other things, the good things, the positive things more salient, more visible, and then you can, you can shift, you can sneak it in there where I get the trigger, but the outcome is very different, more positive. Which is very, I mean, honestly, this is, so wait, if you go back to this idea that you presented earlier on where 40% of our behavior is determined by habits, and, and what you're talking about now is essentially these if-else statements that are, that are built into our you know, internal neural programming, like a, like a computer program, and just changing what the then part of that is as opposed to getting rid of the trigger. Basically, we are these, these machines that are going to do whatever we're pre-programmed to do. Now we just have to make those things healthier choices. It becomes, it really is, uh, I mean, life hacks is actually a very apropos metaphor for how to hack your body into doing what you want to do. It is like being a computer hacker. No, it's, 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 it's actually really great because what you can use this to make laziness a superpower. Uh-huh. Where, you know, what's the easiest thing to do? Well, you know, if I put the books closer and the computers in the other room, mm-hmm. I'm probably not going to spend as much time, you know, surfing the net. I'm going to spend more time reading. If I, put, if I, if I don't buy, you know, the, the real discipline when it comes to like Wansink is, you know, when you're shopping. If I don't right. buy the bad food, if the right. bad food's not in the house, it's really hard to eat donuts. You don't have donuts. You know, so like that, but if you just make them less visible, harder to reach, and you put the stuff out there, you now laziness is working in your favor. <laughs> yeah, and just to be, just to be clear, uh, we have interviewed Brian a couple of times, and he also believes that the true key to losing weight is to eat with your clothes off in front of a mirror. I, I mean, the, these, are, these are some really great, uh, Dan Ariely, <laughs> who's a, a, a researcher at Duke, uh, someone asked him one time, you know, how do I control myself on Thanksgiving? He said, it's very simple. Wear the tightest shirt you own. Yeah, you know? there you go. Yeah, you're going to feel gross all the time. Feel it. You're going to feel it. It's like, as opposed to only thinking after the fact, oh my God, I ate too much. As opposed to like being very aware, you know, right. in the moment. It, it works wonders. By the way, Thanksgiving is the day you can just eat whatever you, like, let that be the day that you just do it. It's the it's the 364 other days where you make the where you make the bad choices. You should be wearing a tight shirt, in my opinion. No, it's a, it's a critical. No, but that's a but that's a critical distinction. Is if you if you look, you know, many more science based diets have cheat meals, have exceptions. The what's really interesting, again, talking to uh, uh, like you said, John, about the issue of the science behind it. What's interesting to note is those those days off, those cheat meals. Those do not increase weight loss. In fact, to a small degree, they hurt it. But overall diet compliance becomes higher because psychologically, you get a break. You don't feel like you're punishing yourself all the time. So in the short term, hey, you're eating more calories, you're probably going to gain weight. But in the long term, people are less likely to quit, to give up, to get stressed out. So having that kind of Thanksgiving day, I get a break. I get a couple cheat meals a week those actually improve in the long term. So therefore they're valuable, even though their effects are purely psychological. That's and, and, and you know, my, in addition to the accomplished authors and researchers that we quote and that whose books we've read and that we're talking about right now, who talk about discipline and the importance of habit. I'm also a huge fan of a guy who has not written a book, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. And I, and, and I unapologetically am a fan of his. 
because he is literally the most disciplined person I've ever seen. The guy is, he doesn't, he's, he's worth a ton of money at this point. He's up every morning trying to be better than he was the day before. He works out like a madman. But I also know what his favorite cheat meal is because I follow him because he posts about it. Not only does he post his, post his great and inspiring workout stuff and, and, and his encouragement, but he also posts him doing the thing that recharges him. And I know that chocolate chip banana pancakes are his cheat meal. And I, and I know that because he shares it and because that's a part of his discipline and he, t and he swears by having those, those, those cheat days. And, and that's really valuable, I think, because when people see these completely unrealistic, seemingly perfect visions, mm -hmm. it's like you beat yourself up. But what, what the research shows, I interviewed uh, Alex Korb, who's a neuroscientist at UCLA. And when we really stress ourselves, stressing yourself takes the prefrontal cortex, the real thinking part of your brain, basically takes it offline. It makes you more impulsive. Impulsive means what? You're more likely to reach for the cookies. You're more likely to eat the bad thing. So the truth is when we stress ourselves out, when we, when we don't think that The Rock eats chocolate chip pancakes, right. when we think people are superhuman, we stress ourselves out, and then you're actually more likely to give in to those old routines, those old bad habits, and you're less likely to stick with the new program that, that you want to. So, right. so seeing examples of people cheating is a good thing. It's, a, it's perfect being the enemy of the good, right? Where you, if, when you fail to be perfect, you cease to be good if you, if you have the wrong mindset. It's what's really critical, I think, that a lot of people don't realize is there's a, a whole host of studies that show that forgiving yourself actually increases compliance with, mm. with new habits and helps get rid of bad habits. When we beat ourselves up, again, we're stressing ourselves out, we're punishing ourselves. That's when people make the one mistake and then it's, ah, oh, forget it. Right. You know, right. Versus if you go, hey, it's a process. I'm going to screw up. It's okay. A little bit of self-compassion. Forgiveness actually improves a lot of, you know, getting rid of bad habits, helping good habits. It also has shown major effects in terms of, you know, when we procrastinate, you beat yourself up. Not good. Forgive yourself. Try again. Yeah, and there's you know there's so many uh, books that uh, great books that that Eric has recommended, and one of them, and Eric, I also wanted to give a sort of a um, a personal tip because you know as much as Gib and I are doing like 36 hours of radio a week, and and as much as we you know uh, interview people and 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 find these new books and 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 dig into the stuff that's interesting to us, um, I, this this program right here, just recommending the books that Eric has in this in this latest blog. It could become overwhelming because you're like, I can't, I just don't have time to get to all these books. But my, my little habit in the morning is that, is that I don't start working on the radio show until I've read at least a half hour of something. Now, that means sometimes it'll be the power of habit, which we were just talking about, or I'll go back and get one of your stories. Because, you know, when you, it, it, it's like you, know, you sit in somebody else's Volkswagen and all of a sudden you're in the market for a Volkswagen and, and you've seen them everywhere. That's what happens when all of a sudden you're like, I got to change my life. I've got to attach some habits to my morning. And then I'm like, I got to go back and reread Eric Barker's book because when you're reading it with the intention of, I'm actually going to do something now. Yeah. So I, I just, I guess my little power tip is don't think you got to read, you know, Barking Up the Wrong Tree or Charles Duhigg's uh, or, or Angela Duckworth's Grid or any of that stuff all the way through. That's the, the beauty of the Kindle, right? And, and also uh, of, of Audible where you can, you know, you can, you can pick. And so that leads us to this other book that you've got me reading now. Uh, I've just loaded up is, and I found this, I don't even know why. I think what happened was when I came out of my, uh, my cancer fog, um, I was a feeling sorry for myself and B I was just, 
just drinking a little bit too much scotch, you know, to the point where, you know, sometimes, sometimes it would be one, uh, you know, one glass, and next night it'd be three, you know, and I'd wake up in the morning, I'm going, how am I going to win the day when I can't get up at 4.30 in the morning? And when I do get up at 4.30 in the morning, I have to take a nap in the middle of, middle of the day. So I had created a loop, right? And, and sometimes that loop actually comes back. And, um, and if I have to fight it if I'm on vacation. And I'm thinking, what is it? I'm a really organized person, right? as Gibbs' four-year-old would say. I'm a smart cookie. Uh, <laughs> but, but I think, why, what causes these cravings? And so I started reading this book that you recommended by Judson Brewer, The Craving Mind. And, um, and what I love about these books that you're recommending is that it's not just, here's why this is happening to you, it's here's some solutions. And so the whole idea of, of the, uh, Judson mentions the, um, the RAIN method, right? Where a craving comes in and you don't just go, I gotta replace this with something else. Gotta, his whole thing is like what med meditation experts talk about, which is recognize the fact that this is a craving. How are you feeling right now? You know, what does it feel like? What's the sensation? Uh, medit meditate on that and then recognize that it's happening and surf over it and see it like almost as an omniscient ob ob observer. And, and of course, I'm assuming you've read that book because you recommended it, but it's just tremendous. I mean, that the whole issue of approaching, approaching it mindfully, there's this concept called cognitive fusion where we have a tendency to whatever a feeling is to say, you know, I, I you know, I am angry. And you know, if you broke your arm, you wouldn't say, I am broken. You would say, my arm is broken. Well, feelings can be treated in much the same way. And that's part of the core of mindfulness is, you know, not I am angry. You know, there are angry feelings in me. You know, I can recognize them and I can distance myself from them. I can see them. I can accept them, you know. And once I realize, hey, they're there, you, you can start to examine them. You can kind of take your distance from them and then you can make a choice about them but you know the brain isn't really good with rejection because when you know don't think of white elephants right you just thought of white elephants you know we try to shove it away but in the act of shoving it you're you're recreating it again versus if we let it sit there if we you know versus versus immediately impulsively reacting to it if we just kind of look at it and we don't have to see my you are not your thoughts you know, your thoughts, all kinds of crazy stuff goes through our head. We don't, we don't act on it. We don't recognize it as us. We see it as a hiccup. We can do the same thing with these, these, these impulses, these feelings. We can recognize them, accept them, not try to shove them away, examine them. And then, like you're saying, with time, it'll dissipate. You know, it just relaxes. Nobody stays, you know, upset, anxious for three days straight, you know, that, that does, it's, it's going to dissipate, especially if we accept it versus wrestling with it. Now it's this tar baby and we're just making it stronger. That's now Gib, Gib uses a technique, um, gosh, is it not, it's not Portofino, Gib, what is Pomodoro? it? Pomodoro? Oh, the Pomodoro technique. And I, I wanted to get your take on this because it's part of his habits where he'll set a, he'll set a, I'll, I'll have him tell you about it. You might have never heard that. It's, it's, I mean, it's pretty simple. And it, and it kind of fits into what you were talking about before with, um, uh, with what Cal Newport does, which is it's 25 minutes on with a five-minute break. And during that 25 minutes, you have to be focused. And, with that, um, and it, if you can tell yourself that you have to be focused for those 25 minutes and then you get a break, it actually interferes with your desire to procrastinate because these 25 minutes are set aside as sacrosanct in that way. Um, and it's great. I mean, you, I, I find that I'm very productive. If I can, I can do several laps of that 25 on five off, 25 on five off, 
and then you usually reward yourself every four laps with a with a bigger break. Um, I, I don't know, are you familiar with that technique? Yeah, and I think that's the Pomodoro technique is really useful because usually the most difficult thing is starting, and just having a starting ritual and having a defined amount of time where you're saying twenty five minutes. Then it ceases to be whatever you're doing ceases to be this enormous insurmountable project which we we get anxious about we build up we make it too scary versus saying all I have to do is 25 minutes you know it's just that kind of thing taking it so small there's one uh, there's one concept uh, that uh, it was a BJ Fogg who's a, a researcher at Stanford uh, I love this idea for building good habits similar to Pomodoro where he talks about MVE, which is minimum viable effort. Oh, yeah. The smallest piece I can engage in. And usually what you'll find is if you just make yourself do that one small piece, you get over the fear, you start going, and you're all of a sudden you're cranking. And that ties in with what we were talking about earlier. We're having a starting ritual. The starting ritual can be you're setting your timer for 25 minutes. I know I'm going. It's not going to be this overwhelming thing. It's just 25 minutes. I'm going to do a little bit. That little bit, that's, that's, that's how you can really get started. And getting started, nine times out of 10, is the toughest part. So what about the people? It's like getting dressed for the gym, right? Yeah. Once you're dressed for the gym, there's no way you're not going to go and work out. That's why I like to get dressed at home before I get there. Oh, it's one of the things. Uh, Sean Aker, the, the, the former Harvard researcher, uh, what he talked about is he wanted to go to the gym more. And he knew he, he'd be more likely to do it, like you're saying getting ready, having the preparation, and the proximity idea, the, you know, having things visible, having things easy. What he did was he just put his gym clothes and his sneakers right next to the bed. Wake up in the morning, there's the gym clothes. Yeah. Okay, put the gym clothes on, I'm dressed, go to the gym. And sure enough, soon enough, wake up, go to the gym, became a habit. So I know that we're going to get uh, some pushback on this from people who don't have lives that are as boring as mine. Where, uh, and let's, let's use Gib as an example, okay? So he's got a one and a half year old at home, four and a half and a six and a half year old, right? And he and his wife are, are, are both working. So he's got the clothes out and it's time, he's, he's gonna go and he's already made, and then one of the kids is sick, which happens every single week. Mm -hmm. So what is, what's, the, uh, what's, what's the way to put together your, your habit loop for a life like that? Is there a way? Yeah, what, the thing you want to look for there is what's is you know there are two two concepts I'd look to. Number one is protected time, and this is something that uh, the research came out of looking at CEOs because most CEOs can't go. I think it was like fifteen minutes without being interrupted at the office because mm. everybody needs their decision, their thoughts, their input, and the CEOs who got the most done in terms of forward progress were CEOs who woke up an hour earlier and did an hour of work at home before they went into the office. It was protected time. Nobody could bother them. And if you kind of say, hey, you know, it's like in that situation to your wife, it's like, hey, here's one hour I need. If you can cover it, then I've got this one hour of protected time. That's a valuable way. The other thing, if, if that's even too tricky, there's a second system. And this actually comes, believe it or not, from, from policing research. Where what they realized was that New York, you know, 20 years ago had a much bigger crime problem. Now it's New York's incredibly safe. One of the reasons why is they used what's called hotspot policing. They realized that the whole city didn't have a crime problem. 
there was a very small area, a few small areas that had really high crime rates, others had really low. And by targeting those specific times, they were able to put disproportionate resources there and bring the rate down. So what you want to do is you want to look at your, your calendar for the day and you want to see patterns. You want to look for hot spots. Here's a time during the day where the kids are out of the house or things are slow and I can actually get stuff done. Here's another time where I am usually busy, I'm usually crazy. And you look at that and you start to see trends and then you schedule your time around those trends that are, that are tailored and specific to your life. Mm, that's genius. And, and then you're also, what you're also doing is you're training your family members and your, and your coworkers, right? This, oh, this is all, this is when John always does this, right? Right. I mean, and then once, once that becomes something as well is where you can say, Hey, here's time usually free. Hey, this is protected time. And then the other time, you know, you're going to be busy. You know, you're going to be crazy. You can be focused on helping around the house, dealing with whatever emergency. And like you're saying, then eventually that becomes a habit for everyone in the house because right. they start to realize, Hey, this isn't a rule just for me. This becomes a rule for the family, but it's in no way selfish because you're saying, I'm designated this for this. Hey, I know this time I'll be busy and I'm going to be there present and ready. You're, you're really cleaving it into two parts and that's just more efficient for everyone. There's a language that Gib and, uh, and his wife use, uh, like if we go on vacation, right? And um, there's an opportunity to go windsurfing, but their kids are napping at this point and, and there's, everybody's all over the place. And, you know, when you say to your, to your partner, when you say, hey, could you watch the kids for a while? You know, it's just, it just doesn't come off Right, you know, it comes off as, as, as judgmental. What they do is, and I'm not sure if you just did this naturally, Gib, or-, or I, I, don't know it, what, I don't know what it's gonna be. I'm, I'm I know, I, I used to love the way I back into stuff. Yeah. yeah. Uh, is a, 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 I'll say, hey, Gib, let's go, uh, let's go uh, boogie boarding or something. He goes, I gotta, tag, I gotta tag my wife now. And so what that means is, is he ta she tags him or, or he tags her. He says, hey, can you tag me right now? And it means they're just flipping he's off on his own and, and she's with the kids or vice versa. And that kind of language I think is really cool for couples. Oh, absolutely. Just having that level of communication because the things people, people forget is that everybody has goals. Everybody has things they're trying to achieve. And, you know, talking to your partner about that and then understanding, Hey, she has stuff she wants to get done. She, she needs her protected time too. Now all of a sudden you're, you're solving things for everybody rather than, you know, keeping this tight, keeping this here and, and feeling like you might be being, being selfish to have an open conversation about it. This is a system that again, can work great for everybody. And the hotspot thing, her hotspots here, your hotspots here. Great. That's when I'm going to tag you is when you're going to tag me. And, you know, all of a sudden you develop a system that, that actually works for everyone. Mm. Well, how do you, uh, you, know, you were recommending Roy Baumeister's book, um, Willpower, and we've uh, given I quoted Roy many times on, the, on our radio shows. Um, and you, uh, you mentioned, hey, one study in this book shows you can increase willpower with a mirror. Uh, when we see ourselves, we naturally compare who we are with who we should be. So how to go take us through the, the, the process of, um, of increasing our willpower. Yeah, um, Baumeister, it's interesting. There's been a big, huge debate actually going on uh, in psychology right now because he's the one who really put forward the, the, the theory that it's called ego depletion. It's the theory that you only have a limited amount of willpower. And there's been a big back and forth about this, but definitely there is a component of that. And one of the things realizing is this whole issue, if we tie things into identity, 
so much changes. It's really, it's really strong. It's a really powerful concept, this, this idea of identity and the self and who you are. And when you take the time, you know, you got a mirror there looking at the mirror it reminds you, it's like, okay, who do I am? Who, who am I? Who do I want to be? It helps keep you on task in mm. terms of, I see myself as the kind of person who completes things. I see myself as a hard worker. I, having anything that reminds you of that, again, like a ritual, a reminder, that can be really, really powerful to help renew when you feel tapped out, when you feel like you don't have any more. What kind of person am I? What kind of person do I want to be? Any reminder like that, you know, it's really strong in terms of helping us boost our willpower when it's flagging. You know, Gib, we used to laugh at Stuart Smalley on Saturday Night Live, but it looks like that's right? the path, right? I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. <laughs> I mean, and, and, and I find it's true, you know, this, this idea, um, I think it kind of goes back to, maybe we do have, it goes back to this idea of our brains as computers, right? Where we have these programs, these applets that run with stimulus and then automatic response. And we, our, our goal should be to make sure that that automatic response is as beneficial to us in the long run as possible. Or that gets us to that place that you're talking about like we want to be. And if willpower is like a muscle, or we have a finite, maybe we have as much willpower as we want or we can exercise it. But at the very, at the very least, we have a finite number of active decisions we can make in a given day. So what, what we basically, if I, had to, if I had to put everything that we've talked about so far today in a bow, what we, um, what we really want to be able to do is make those, um, make those automatic decisions as beneficial as possible so that, our autom so that our willpower is able to be used for new stimulus and not necessarily for dealing with the stuff that we know we're going to see every day and smoothing out the rest of those other cracks with, with, with the quote-unquote applets of our brain. And the, and the research totally supports what you're saying in the sense of when something is a habit, we actually use less willpower when it's a routine. When we're in the midst of executing that program, we're not stressed out. You know, so the more you can make things habit, the less willpower you have to use. That's why it's really hard in the beginning to stop a bad habit or to start a new habit. But once you get going, so yeah, the more you can make things a routine, a ritual, I do this at this time, that's who I am, the, the easier it gets and you free up more energy for other activities. So tell the folks at home, what your, what does your day look like? You're a very creative person, we know that. Um, what, what are your challenges and, and what does your day look like habit-wise? Uh, I, I, I wake up and I have uh, a, a morning ritual where it's basically, I look at my goals for the day, I look at my calendar for the day, and you know, I, I look at like my priorities. What do I want to finish? And usually, I've I've sculpted that to some degree the night before as an evening ritual. When I kind of close out for the day, I will uh, basically to stop that loop in my head. Oh my god, I got to get this done. What's next? And you know, I write it all down. What do I what do I want to accomplish today? What do I want to accomplish tomorrow? And I start with that. I start with my morning ritual. I go straight to the gym. You know, I get I get my workout done. You know, what time, what time is this? Um, based generally, I'm generally up around seven o'clock. I usually oh. give like a half hour to 45 minutes for the morning ritual. I'm usually at the gym by eight. And then uh, I'm at the gym for usually an hour to an hour and a half, you know, cardio and weights. And then I usually come back and I try and immediately uh, get to the big task of the day because in line with some of the Baumeister willpower research, it's kind of like using those critical hours. Uh, Dan Ariely talked about this, where 
usually the first two and a half to four hours of the day is the best time for, for, for very analytical work. And so I'm, I'm trying to reserve my brain power for that. And then the second half of the day is when I do more busy work, where it's not as cognitively intense, but it's more phone calls, any stuff like that, more passive stuff like reading, reading over things. And then I try and have a hard deadline and a, sh a shutdown ritual, that evening ritual, where I review what did I accomplish today? What do I need, know I need to do tomorrow? But I think another critical part of a, of a shutdown ritual, an evening ritual, is to, to be proud. What did I accomplish today? What did I finish? To feel good about it, to feel happy about it. Close the day out happy. I think that's like something really critical so that you, you can relax, so that you don't still have a lot of issues spinning in your head at night. Is there a danger of, of uh, putting, writing down too many goals on that list? I mean, well, then you're gonna start to feel like you're, 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 not, you're not getting stuff done. That's where the, the fixed schedule productivity of being able to look at your calendar and being focused on time, not just a to-do list. It allows you to be a little bit more realistic. Sometimes things run over, but to be able to say, this is about as much as I can get done. That's realistic. If I could do a little more, great. I'll be proud of myself. But I don't want to end every day feeling like I only did 70% of what I wanted. I only did 75%. You know, that's, that's, that's going to wear you down a little while. So I like to look at the calendar and try and be realistic. And that also allows you to help plan the week, which for some people who have trouble breaking their day up, maybe it's chaotic, it can be better to look at your week and to isolate rather than hours to say, on Mondays, I do this. On Tuesdays, my focus is this. You can adjust it to make sure that things get done. You can use days, weeks, whatever timeline allows you to, to get things done the way you need. You making any changes based on this, Gib? Uh, um, well, I want to start sleeping until 7 o'clock first. <laughs> That's a change I would like to make. But no, I mean, this, the idea of getting your stuff done first thing in the morning and how that is your best thinking time is, is really crucial. And I know you, John, you, you, that's, that's you. You have that time in the morning that is supposed, and, when, and when, you're, when that's interrupted by an appointment, I watch it ripple through the whole day. Um, for me, it is, I, I, when I get my kids to school, um, sometimes I feel like my day is done at that point at you know, 8.30 in the morning because it took so much of me to get to that place that I, um, and, and I think giving myself permission to let that be, let that happen and, and then get into the habit of, of finding other mindless activities to, to, to rejuvenate myself is great. I also want to, um, I also don't do what you talked about at the, at, in that little spiel um, where I look back on the day and find the positive. And that is something that is not only important for productivity, but it's important for your mental well-being and for your, your feeling of, and avoiding depression. Uh, that, that sort of positive mindfulness is, is really important. I think that, um, you, know, you know, for me, um, not even cardio, uh, Eric, but if I can get to the gym and I have one of those boxing timers, right, that it just, it's like, you know, I'm on for a minute five and I'm and 35 minutes. If, if I can, if I, when I lift weights, there's something about the, and I'm sure you know all about this, with dopamine, serotonin surge or whatever, um, that's my real, that's my start button. And um, I know Gib reacts the same way to, to Same exact exercise. Way. So I, mean, I think that's probably a good tip for people who even, who haven't even started an exercise program is to maybe get in a class every morning, you know, and have, and have that win, right? Oh, I mean, that, that, Feeling. It's funny you actually use that terminology. 
small wins. There's a whole research body on just the idea of having those little achievements, you know, for the day, checking those boxes just makes us feel better. And those things add up. And, you know, when, when we don't, when we see tasks as these huge things and we don't break them up in any fashion, it's hard to register progress and we don't feel as good to be able to say, here's the thing, got my workout done for the day. It allows you to check that box. I accomplished something. When you break tasks into smaller things and you can achieve small wins, like you said, you feel good and then you, you're ready to take on the, the next challenge. And, you know, definitely physical activity. You know, there's tons of research that, that shows that, you know, exercise is actually more powerful than, you know, most of the prescription antidepressants we have. Exercise is, you know, phenomenal because we're really using our bodies and, and most of us don't spend enough time moving, especially, especially, you know, guys who spend most of their time in a chair reading or writing. Right, right, right. Hey, Gip, uh, you have any more questions before we let Eric go? Uh, I actually, no, we covered all of the, all of the big topics that I, that I really wanted to cover. Um, I, I guess, what is, what is your favorite, what, how do you start your writing process? I, you, you have a, a different writing process from most of the guys that is not as habit-based as uh, what almost every other writer talks about. So how do you get into your writing? For me, I, I take writing, I use a very different approach than, I mean, like you said, I, I, most writers I talk to don't do things the way I do, where I take a very structured approach, but it always starts with me reading a lot, me seeing what's interesting to me, what ideas are great, and then I try and take a, a very structured, like, for me, it's like building a house, or, you know, it's like blueprints. I like an, a nice outline, I like to know what I'm doing, what I'm focusing on, and just have that, like, very kind of like it's flexible i can move things around but i have a very detailed outline so for me it always starts with idea generation reading something interesting i take that step then i go to trying to formalize it into something that is very structured and flows and then the actual process of writing you know actually starting the words then that's easy because you know the, the blueprints are done we know where everything's going and, and that takes a lot of the stress off of me versus sitting down on a blank page. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not sure what's going on. You know, I have done so much work in advance of that, that for me, it's a lot less stressful. And it also allows me to free, free it up and be a lot more creative knowing that I've done so much preparation. Now I can, I can have some fun. You know, Gib, um, as I sit here with 13,000 words out of 75,000 completed on this book that I said yes to, I just heard a guy say, you know, when it's time to write, that's the easy part. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thanks so much. I appreciate that. Eric. Maybe, yeah. maybe based on your education, it is the easiest thing you've ever done. Give, give yourself permission <laughs> to think bad thoughts about Eric in your head. <laughs> no, I'll, sur I'll surf them. <laughs> they are not you. Those yeah. are just <laughs> Eric, this has just been, it's really been great. And, and Gib and I are both big fans and, and, and um, I'll make sure we have links to your, you know, not to your, to your blog, but also to your, you know, to your book and the books that you, that you recommend. And we love to keep this uh, conversation started. I, I promise I wouldn't ask you this question, but uh, yeah, you've got to be thinking about the, 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 the next book, right? Yeah, I've, I've, I've got to see, like, basically, I'm, I'm, right now I'm in, that, I'm in that process of reading and testing and, and thinking about, but basically I, I think it's, it's going to be similar in structure in the sense of I want to look at another, you know, first book I looked at the issue of success. N next book it's like, okay, what topic do I think we have a lot of uh, myths, sacred cows, a lot of, a lot of areas that 
that our, our common ideas, our common beliefs don't line up with uh, the research and what experts have to say. And uh, I, I'm looking for that, that next big arena that I want to tackle and, and, try and, and try and give us what the, what the research and the experts say is the best way to go about it. I, 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 would, I would ask that you consider something, a combination between what Daniel Coyle did with the talent code and, and Angela Duckworth and those guys, where those of us, uh, me, who is very average, average scores and everything, would, would love to not be intimidated by the other guy that you're looking at right now, Gib who's, you know, perfect SATs and super talented. But uh, I, I think a lot of times, you know, we're all told, well, your genetics are, are, are saying that you can't do this and you can't do that. So, um, and, and bark at the wrong tree was, was, was a big part of, uh, of my encouragement too. But I think that that's a place I, I see that, you know, with a millennial that just left our house and, and now with grandkids coming up. Um, you know, I, I hate to see people's uh, spirits broken when it comes to, I just wasn't born with that kind of talent because you literally can hack your life into anything. No, I, and that's something that, you know, definitely like the first chapter of my book where, you know, we have natural, you know, natural advantages or natural disadvantages, but, you know, it's extraordinarily rare that anybody with, you know, hard work and effort in the right direction can't become very, very good at something if they really apply themselves to it. Obviously, moving in the direction of our natural strengths or against our natural weaknesses is great but you know we don't we we are very rarely you know super limited you know by those things and and we shouldn't be and in fact some of the greatest achievements some of the greatest creativity has been in terms of people finding those strengths but also looking at their weaknesses and realizing how their weaknesses gotham mcunda at, at harvard business school talks about this taking your weaknesses and finding how those can be valuable to you as well i think that's something critical so no, we're very, I don't write, I never write about genetics because I'm not interested in, in areas where, where we can't improve, where we can't do something more. And I'm, I was excited to be able to talk about the research that shows, you know, we're not as hampered as people often believe by, by those natural elements. In fact, they usually grant us new possibilities. Awesome, great, cool. That's all I got, Give you good? Yeah, you talk about my SAT scores being better than yours, but you know, You've got an Emmy and I don't. I'm just, I'm just going to put that out there. No, I've got, I've, I've got two. Don't you, have like six? don't you have like six if we're going to do this? <laughs> I, just, I got lucky. Nothing's happened in the last 20 years, though. You know, I'm a failure. I'm a, washed, I'm a washed up guy. Thank you guys so much for listening to Intelligence for Your Life, the podcast. If you like our program, be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. If you want to follow up more with Eric Barker, you can uh, find the book Barking Up the Wrong Tree. I'll put a link to that again in the show notes. Also, I'll put a link to his blog. His blog has a weird title that is hard to, for me to pronounce, but it is bakadesuyo.com. I believe it's the Japanese version of his name, but I, all you have to do is search for Eric Barker and uh, on, on Google or Bing or wherever you do your searches, and you'll be able to find it. I'll also put, again, like I said, a link to the show notes. If you have anything that you want to hear us talk about on the podcast, on the radio show, or anywhere, you can find us, as always, at facebook.com slash John Tesh. Let us know if you like the show. Let us know if we need to have your you know, uncle's cousin's nephew on the show because he's such an amazing guest. We'll consider it. Also, uh, I'm at facebook.com slash Gib Gerard or at Gib Gerard on all the platforms. John is at John Tesh. And uh, yeah, guys, thank you so much for listening. <laughs>